Job chapter 9. And two weeks ago, as we were studying the book of Job, we really had a message titled, Who Do You Listen To? Who Do You Listen To? Right? As we saw the critics and we saw those that were coming, the friends of Job that were coming and coming to accuse Job, to come as an adversary to Job and to remind him or to tell him that from their perspective he was guilty. And what we know that was taking place was that they were giving or telling him truth or using truth in the wrong context. And we learned a lot about who we ought to listen to in times of adversity and in times of trial. But in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, now Job answers now his friend Bildad, right? He answers now Bildad from Bildad's accusation that he just finished in the previous chapter stating. And that was that Job needed to logically repent. And now from chapter 9, what Job does is that he answers Job, uh, Bildad's accusation. And in Job chapter 10, then he speaks to God. So we're at Job chapter 9, and we've titled today's message, God is in control. And I think this is a very important title to the message, as simple as it is. It's a reminder that we ought to really take note of who's in control in times of adversity. Because here Job is waiting on God during difficult times. And maybe right now you're going through some difficult times and you're waiting on God and you have to be reminded that God is in control. This entire book of Job, it's important that we realize this and continue to come back to this, that it really is not about the why in suffering. It's not about the why in suffering, but it's about the how in suffering, right? There are times in our life that we're very much so tempted to ask why and we spend a lot of time asking the why in suffering, but this book teaches us more than just the why when it comes to suffering. More than just the why when it comes to trials in your life. It teaches us the how to face the suffering. How to go forward in moments of pain. And in a moment of pain, what we ought to ask ourselves is not, not who brought this upon me. Who is it that I can blame? Who caused this upon me? But maybe what can I learn from this or how can I grow? What can I learn and how can I grow? Can you, can you remember those things today? What can I learn and how can I grow? Because the trials are really the classroom and the school to spiritual development. They're the, the classroom and the school to spiritual development. And you want to grow, you're going to find out that you're going to go through some trials. In fact, they're, they're used as a tool for refinement. You want to be refined? It happens in the fire. It happens in the heat, right? You want to get sharp? It happens in the You cannot get sharp outside of the heat. In fact, if you want God to sharpen you, to use you, to, to now melt away the impurities of your life. He is going to grab your life and put you in the heat and let you sit there for a little bit so that the impurities can melt away from your life. In fact, it's in the trial that we really understand, that we really know the power of God. You want to know the power of God? You want to understand the power of God? You're, you're going to understand it. 
And you're going to know the power of God in the trial. You, you really will. But also what, what Job is going to really now take us to a place now where he's finding safety also. In the trial, there's safety. There's security. And that's in the hand of God. And I want you to know that in the trial, God takes you in the trial. He, he puts you right there under, the, under the, 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 the heat of the trial. But guess what? He is holding you right there in that fire. It's the hand of God that you can find safety and security. And some of us need to be reminded of that. The power of the hand of God. Because sometimes God's preparations really come and they're packaged through pain. How many times have you gone through pain and the Lord packaged now preparation through some kind of pain in your life and then after He uses that time in your life as, as, as some of the greatest breaking points of your life but also the, the greatest blessings of your life. Oftentimes the greatest breaking points that you will experience in your life like Job are those of greatest blessing. Because you're going to look back and you're going to say, Lord, thank you for teaching me. Thank you because I'm understanding the power of God. And know this. There are some of us here that in the trial, in that moment, guess what we want to do? We, we in through our perspective, through our vantage point, God becomes the God that seems absent from your perspective, but He's still in control. You might think God is absent, but He is still in control. Remind yourself and remember that. Not only is He still present, he is not only present, but He still wants to use your life. And He is using Job's life in an overall purpose that Job doesn't understand. He's using Job's life. I, I really want to encourage you with this before we go to Job chapter 9. I think it's important because sometimes we become very discouraged in the trial. But just because your trial is big doesn't mean your vision has to be small. Would you, would you take note of that, please? Just because your trial is big doesn't mean your vision is going to be small. You see, here the vision of Job needs to go back and needs to focus on that God is in control, the power of God and the hand of God. Because if in this book we can learn that this really just man that maintained his integrity can suffer through very terrible things, then just maybe we also can realize that those that are wicked can be justified also. Justified also by the mediator, by the arbitrator that Job is going to cry out for. Do you know he's going to cry out for a mediator right now? I love it that the Bible gives us and asks we're going to find some Old Testament questions and then we're going to see some New Testament answers. <laughs> if you read the Bible, you start to understand and know that the Bible, there are Old Testament questions and where we find New Testament answers to. And right here we're going to find, he's going to ask himself three questions. Question number one, how can I be righteous before God? And, and that's the question that he wants to ask. How can I be right before God? If I am guilty, how is it that I can be right before God then? Question number two is, who can plead my case to God? Who is it that can defend me before God then? Who is it that can, can, can challenge my case before God? Question number two. And question number three is, why was I created by God? Why was I even created 
And do you know why he's asking these questions? Because the enemy seeks to come and to accuse you and to make you feel guilty, make you feel full of shame in your moment of trial. That's what the enemy wants to do. And the oldest question, if this is the oldest book, then the oldest question is, where is God in your moment of trial? Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to go to Job chapter 9 as he's crying out for a mediator, someone that would plead his case and settle his dispute before God once and for all because the pain is too difficult to handle and the pressure feels more heavy than what he can bear. So let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, because you put us in situations, Lord. Oftentimes, God, in places where the pressure is difficult for us to bear, and where the pain, Lord, feels so heavy, Lord, and where we cannot handle. But I pray, Lord, that we would remember, remember Lord, that you are in control. And Lord, that just because our trial is big doesn't mean that our vision of you has to be or needs to be small, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we can see you clearly and that our vision would be you, Lord. You in control, that you are sovereign. In Jesus' name, and together we said, Amen. Job chapter 9, it says, Then Job answered, he's answering Bildad and Bildad's accusation. And first of all, in verse 2, you're going to see that he realizes now what Bildad is stating. And Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. Now he acknowledges, Bildad, you are right. His friends were bringing him truth at the wrong time. His friends were stating the obvious in his moment of pain. That is the worst thing that you can do ever. <laughs> to state the obvious, to state the logic in the moment of someone's pain. If you want to talk about the justice of God, you also must talk about the compassion of God. You must. Because in the same conversation of the justice of God also exists the compassion of God. And they failed to realize that they had a very narrow view of God. It says here in verse 2, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous, righteous before God? Look at this question. How is it that I can be righteous before God? How can I be right before God? That is a question now that we see even in a book that is dated back to the time of the book of Genesis of how can man be right before God? Now, right next to this verse, I want you to write now Romans 5 verse 1 and 2. And jot that down in your Bible because it says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is how we can be right with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. He is crying out for someone that would rescue him and make him or a way to make himself right before God. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace or into this gift in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now there is hope, there is an answer to this question. How can we be right before God? That is the biggest question. Here's the gospel in verse 2. How can you be right before God? Through His Son Jesus Christ that died on the cross for our sins. 
That, that it is in the finished work of Christ that we can be right before the Father. And none of our works can be make us right before God. He's going to state that right now. Now verse 3, it tells us this. If one wished to contend with Him, if someone wished to now challenge God. Now if I, if I think that I can challenge God in order to make myself right, look what he says in verse 3. He could not answer Him one time out of a thousand. There's not even one time that I can give an explanation out of 1,000 times to excuse myself or to challenge my case or even win one out of a 1,000 times before God. Because verse 4, God is wise in His heart and mighty in strength. He understands that God is beyond His ability to know. In your moment of trial, you have to understand that God is beyond your ability to even know. And His plans are past our finding out. That's exactly why we have to trust God now. And in verse 5, He goes on, and, and think about how He starts to explain the power of God. It says in verse 5, He removes the mountains, talking about God here. Or verse 4, as we continue reading, it, let's not skip over that. It says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself or who has challenged against him and prospered. Who has ever won against God in a case? He removes the mountains they, they do not know. He overturns them in his anger. Look at, he talks about and focuses in on the power and the strength of God over nature and over creation. He shakes the earth from its place, and its pillars tremble now. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals the star. He alone spreads out the heavens, and He treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear Orion and the Pileats and the chambers of the south. Now, do you see how he understands that God's power is over all creation? Verse 10. He does great things past finding out. There you go. This is the key here. His thing, the things that God does, He has done great things. They are past our understanding. What does that mean? That there are times in our lives that God is going to be doing something, orchestrating something, organizing something, in control of something that you don't necessarily understand why. But God is using here Job to silence the enemy. What is the enemy's case here? That, that only those that God prospers will actually serve Him and maintain their integrity. Now God is using Job's life without Job even knowing that. Do you see that? That His ways is past finding out. Verse 10. His ways are marvelous. And you don't understand them. And that's okay. Because He's God and you're not. Remind yourself that. He's God and I'm not. Now verse 11. Yeah, or finding out, yes, wonders without number. He now does wonders more than we can even imagine or count. If He goes by me, I do not see Him. Verse 11. If He moves past, I do not perceive Him. He's invincible and He's invisible. 
You see the attributes of God, the character of God in verse 11? If he goes by me, I do not see him. He is invisible. Look what he says. And he moves past, and I do not perceive him. He is also invincible, talking about the power of God. If he takes away, now, verse 12, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? <laughs> Job is saying, how can I even question God? His ways are past finding out. He is in charge. Who am I to question God? God will not withdraw his anger. His allies, verse 13, are proud and they lie prostrate beneath him. God will not restrain his anger. And even those that are proud will understand his strength. Here he's acknowledging the power of God. Verse 14, and from verse 14 to 18, now he's thinking about how small he is in comparison to the greatness of God because here he believes that God is far. Have you ever been in a trial where you feel like God is far? Well, I want you to know that maybe in your moment of trial where you believe that God is far or you feel that God is far, He is also actually very near. He's very near. Even in your moment of trial where you think He is far. Let's read verse 14. How can I answer him who chose my words to reason with him? Verse 14. And he's going to start to talk about the suffering he's undergoing and how he feels that he is far. But one of the greatest applications that we can learn from the book of Job is that God is near in the moment of trial. And it says, verse 15, For though I was righteous, could I not answer him? I would beg for mercy of my judge. I called and he answered me. I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. I would not think that he would listen to my voice. Who am I to try to answer God? Even if I was right, he's saying. How could I ever plead for mercy? For he crushes me with the tempest here. And multitudes my words without a cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Now he thinks that God's against him. You see, there are times where we believe that not only God is far, but we believe that God is against us in the moment of trial. But here Job is really going to teach us throughout the next few chapters that God is actually very near when he seems distant. And this is an important story that's unfolding that when you do not see him, he is still now present. And one day you will see the rest of the story in heaven. You might not know why this is taking place in your life, but one day you will. There are times in our life where we're concerned about our present comfort. That's what we're really concerned about. We're concerned about our present comfort, but God is concerned about our eternal state. And therefore, He will allow this. And He will be in control. Do you see that in your life you're concerned sometimes about your present comfort all the time? And at the moment of trial, we start to complain and to ask God why and to try to find who to blame. But God is more than concerned about your present comfort. He's in concern about your eternal state. In Psalms 145 verse 18, and I want you to really take note of that. Psalms 145 verse 18, it says, The Lord here is near. This is amazing here. The Lord is near to those who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Do you see how God is near to us even when we think that He is far? The Lord is near. 
This is what the psalmist says. To all those who call upon Him, to those that call upon Him, even in truth. Let's go to verse 19. As he continues to talk about the greatness of God in comparison to the way he feels at the present moment. He's thinking about his present moment instead of his eternal state. It says, if it's a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. If it's about strength, he is strong. Who can challenge God? And if it is of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Who is it that's going to appoint my day in court? Who is it that's going to defend me in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. See, there is no way that I can be righteous before God because I'm a sinner, he's saying. I, I, there is no way that I can prove myself to be as an innocent. Verse 21. I'm blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. He's saying, though I am innocent, I know that I'm guilty before a righteous God. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. He's saying he destroys both alike. He is in control of both alike. Verse 23, he says, If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked, and he covers the face of the judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? Who is it that is really in control? Who is behind everything? Who's behind the wicked? Who's behind the righteous? Who is it that is allowing these things to take place? If it's not him, then who can it possibly be, he's saying? See, he's, he's asking and he's crying out for God and understanding that he needs God. He is hopeless in this situation. Now my days are swifter than a runner, verse 25 they flee away and they see no good. Now he's saying, my, my life is passing me by. My life is going faster than a runner and a ship. And look what he say, and, and runner than an, and faster than an eagle. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaining and I will put off my sad face and wear a smile, what would happen if I just hide my pain and I put on a smile or, or I, I, I pretend like everything is okay? Have you ever felt so in, in so, such misery where you're saying, all right, what's going to happen if I actually even pretend that I'm okay? Does that going to change anything? That's exactly what he's saying. I'll still be in pain. I'm afraid, verse 28, of all my suffering. And I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I'm condemned, verse 29, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and water and cleanse my, ha my hands with soap, Yet you will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. So just imagine, if I go out, and in my own work try to cleanse myself, I would still be guilty before God, because God is sovereign, and I am a sinner. Do you understand here, in verse 29, 30, and 31, I like this, that he's bringing this to surface, because there are times in our life that we try to be right with God in our own works, and he realizes this, that will never be effective before a righteous God, a holy God. Just imagine if I go and I, and I try to now wash myself with snow and cleanse myself and my hands with soap and with water, and yet you will still find me guilty. What does this teach us? That our, our, the, the best version of ourselves and our own works are still 
not enough before a righteous God. That's what he's saying. You think that a lot of people, even today, they try to be self-righteous. Cleanse themselves by their own works. Cleanse themselves by their own doing. However, before God, they are still guilty. And Job, Job is saying this. Regardless of what I do before God, I will still be guilty. He's realizing that he understands that he needs something outside of himself to plead his case before God. And do you know that? That you need, you know yourself, you cannot be right with God. And that's exactly what he's, he's bringing to light. I love this. The oldest book of God's word telling us that in and of ourselves, we cannot be right with God. No matter what. No matter what, since day one, there are times where we think that we are right with God and we're innocent and they're to blame and not me. But Job is saying, you know what? I, I might be a man of integrity. I might be a man that is blameless. However, before a righteous God, I am still guilty. Verse 32. For he is not a man that I may answer him. He's not a man. How is it that I am going to answer and have this uh, conversation or this debate like, uh, like I would like to, to plead my case and once and for all be right with God that this... He would remove this from me, that he is not a man that I should answer him, and what, and that we should go to court together. Have you ever tried to fight God or take him to court? <laughs> Say, Lord, I'm going to win this against you. He understands that he is not one that can make himself right before God. He understands that it is useless to try now to be right with God in his own terms, in his own strength. It is absolutely useless, he's saying here. But now verse 32, this is where the climax comes. And exactly why he said all this. Verse 32, nor is there a mediator. Now underline that please, verse 32. Because that's exactly what we need. In our own self-righteousness, we'll never be right with God. In our own strength, in our own works, in our own ability. In, you can you know, wash yourself with snow, with water, with soap. No matter what you do to appear to be right before people. And God, we are still guilty because He is a righteous God. But He's saying, nor is there a meteor between us... Who's us between man and God? What's a mediator? One that goes to plead your case, to dispute your case here. Who may lay his hand. Think about this. This is a beautiful picture. This is an illustration that Job is giving us of what Jesus later on went to do. Verse 33. Who may lay his hand on us both. You know what Jesus did? The mediator did. He put his hand on the Father, one hand, and the other hand he put his hand on mankind. That's what a mediator does. And now he settles the dispute. And what does he do? He, he now, uh, now, uh, now puts together what has been broken. He mends what has been broken. And he unites that again. He settles the case. This is amazing because Jesus settled your case. Do you know that you had a mediator that was standing before you and God and he settled your case? As if you were in court being accused and he stood up for you and he settled your case. That word mediator, he's almost even talking about as, in, as of an umpire. There's nobody that's even keeping score, he's saying. <laughs> There's nobody that can plead my case, he's saying. Is there anyone that can bring us together? You see here that how, how Jesus comes up here in this, in this, this book and how we get the answer to a mediator that can put his hand on us both. Verse 34, what would a mediator do? 
Let him, I love this, look at how him is capitalized. Signifying and talking about the deity of that mediator. Let him, the mediator, take his rod away or the father's rod or God's rod away from me. You see, it's a rod of, of chastisement that he thinks is upon him. A rod of discipline. Let the mediator come and take that rod away from me. Let Christ come and do this. Defend me or lift this punishment away from me. Or, uh, or, or take it now from me once and for all. And do not, verse 34, let dread of him terrify me so that I no longer would be terrified in this punishment any longer. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. You know what he's saying? It is not so with me. But I cannot do it in my own strength. The best thing for you to realize, and, I, and please, would you pay attention to this? Because the greatest thing that you can realize is that in the moment of trial, you cannot do it in your own strength. And that's when he comes to the final point of verse 35 of chapter 9. There are times in our life that we're going through trials and we want to do it in our own strength. And that is the worst thing that we can do. Because we will never find the strength, never find the strength to endure any trial without hanging on to the Lord. You see, we have a mediator. And we can cling on to that hope of the mediator of Jesus Christ, an advocate now, who is pleading our case before the Father as the enemy wants to come and attack us and remove us from our calling now and accuse us, Jesus, the mediator, come, will come and acquit us. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to come and pronounce you guilty and remove you from your calling. But the now mediator or Christ comes and acquits us or pronounces us not guilty. Do you see how this happens? He's almost talking as if something that were to take in a courtroom. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. He's talking about now uh, that we would understand that we can have hope in Christ. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, notice this, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the appropriation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world, we have an advocate. Not only do we have an advocate, but we are also our mediator. He's also not only called an advocate. In Hebrews, he's called a high priest. I want you to maybe leave a marker there in Job chapter 10. And go to Hebrews chapter 4 with me. Hebrews chapter 4. Because we're going to learn about this mediator. And I think it's important that we don't just rush through it. That we learn about this mediator. And in Hebrews chapter 4. In your weakness... You have a high priest. In your weakness, we must hold on to the hope of our mediator. And look what he says here in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What does this mean? That when we are weak, he sympathizes. He understands. I love it that he understands when I'm weak. Do you not appreciate that about the love of God that he, he has, we have a high priest? A high priest would go and he would plead for the sins of the nation, of the people. He would go in the holies of holies. 
Hebrews tells us that that person that has gone once and for all for us, his name is Jesus. And he not only goes and pleads our case for our sins, and he's done that once and for all, but it also tells us that he understands and he sympathizes our weakness, but was in all now points tempted as we are. Yet he didn't sin. And then it tells us in verse 16, Let us therefore, because he understands, come boldly through the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, here it says, and find grace to help in time of need. What is it that we ought to do in our moment of trial? Go now to the throne. Go now to the throne of grace. To the throne of grace. Go into the presence of God. Where do you have to do in your moment of trial? Go into the presence of God. Because there you're going to find mercy. You're going to find forgiveness. There you're going to find grace. You're going to find the grace of God in the moment of weakness. In time of what? In time of need. Was not Job in the time of need? You know that in your time of need, that's when you need, your, that's when you need to cry out to your mediator, to your high priest that understands your weakness. That in your time of need, He can give you help in time of need. Help in time of need. Do you need help? Job needed help. It was his time of need. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That man is Christ Jesus. What is it? What, why is it that we're talking about this? Because our mediator not only is alive, our mediator, listen to this, is available. Not only is He alive, He is available. And you do not have to listen to the confusion and the condemnation of Bildad when you can hold on and be anchored in the hope of Jesus. There's a lot of us here that are listening to the confusion and the condemnation of Bildad. Maybe friends, the world... The enemy that comes and tries to give us lies. But you know how you fight lies? You fight lies with the truth of the Word of God. That I know that I have an advocate that is standing and pleading my case. And settling that case for me already. And his name is Jesus. Not only he is alive, but he's also available for me. This is important that we realize this. That we go to Jesus. Don't go to confusion. Don't go to condemnation. Go to Jesus. Let's go to Job chapter 10. And we see that now he's asking for a deliverer. He's talking to God. But understand, this is something that's important. That Now Job, really what he's doing now, and he's saying, why God? Why was I even born? Why did you create me? Why didn't I just die? This is such a waste, Lord. I, it's such a waste. Why waste all this suffering? Why waste all this time? But notice this, and I want you to know this, because a lot of us, every time we're going through, through te- uh, some type of adversity, we ask of the Lord, and we start to think, Lord, I, this is such a waste now. But nothing offered to God in faith and in love is ever wasted. Do you know that God doesn't ever waste time? God is a good steward of time. And God also is a good steward of suffering. And he really is a good steward. Nothing in the hands of God is ever wasted. Notice that. Nothing in the hands of God is ever wasted. We sometimes think this is such a waste of time, a waste of season, a waste of pain, a waste of suffering. But not even suffering is a waste in the hands of God. 
And if you're living in the hands of God, if you're submitted in the hands of God, then it, it was not a waste in your life because you learn from it, because you grow from it. And Job was going to realize that, that God would use him later on to silence the devil. There are times you're not going to realize it. Why is God allowing this? But know this. Know this. Understand this, that no time is ever wasted time in the hands of God. No time is ever wasted time in the hands of God. Why? Because God is a good steward and He will not waste it. He will not waste time and He will not waste suffering if you are submitted in His hands. I love this because the entire, now, the few chapters, He's going to talk about the hand of God. Look at in verse 10. What is He saying now in regards to as He's crying out for a deliverer? My soul loads my life. I will give free course to my complaint. He's saying, I'm going to speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Show me, God, why, is your, why are you bringing this to me? Show me now, God, why are you allowing this? Why do you contend? The word contend means, why do you bring this to me? Contend. Uh, maybe God is contending. Maybe He's allowing this. Maybe He's bringing this in your life. To show you His power that it can uphold you. Uh, the moments of, uh, of testing your life, you know what it shows you? That you can lean into the power of God and it holds you. That you don't have to hold yourself in your own strength. That the power of God holds you in trial. That's why we, the Lord maybe is contending. The Lord also contends maybe because He wants to show you compassion. The Lord contends maybe sometimes because He wants to really, uh, you know, to prune and take away something from your life. He contends because He wants you to enter into the fellowship of His suffering and understand what it means to deny yourself and to be patient and to be more like Him. He contends now sometimes because He wants to humble you. But He always has a reason on why He contends. Why He is now allowing this. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smite the counsel of the wicked? Is this okay with you, Lord, that you allow the wicked to get away, but however I, me, that you created me, that you don't allow me to get away? Or do you, the eyes of the flesh, or do you see as man sees? Are, you, are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity? What is it, Lord, that you're doing that you're looking to now find me not only guilty, Lord, but who is it that can rescue me? How is it that you can be possibly working out something for good in this situation? There's nothing good that can come out of this, Job is saying. Why? Because he could not see what could only be seen with eyes of faith. When you're going through trials, ask the Lord, give me eyes of faith that I can see what can only be seen in this moment through eyes of faith. Something that naturally I cannot see that has to be spiritually discerned as to how, Lord, you want me to endure. He could not see what could only be seen through eyes of faith. It go, and you know what? The sight of faith, the eyes of faith go, they go beyond now. They go beyond your present circumstances. Your present circumstances want to see what's taking place now. The eyes of faith see beyond your present circumstances into the plan of God. Into the plan of God. Lord, I want to see into the plan of God. I don't want to see into my present circumstances. I want to see into the plan of God with eyes of faith. That's exactly what he needed. Verse here. Seven, although you know that I am not wicked, there is no one that can deliver me from your hand. He's going to talk a lot about the hand of God now 
here in the next verses, your hands have made me, they have fashioned me. This is an intricate unity. You are the one that put me together now. He's demonstrating humility. Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay and you turn me into dust again. Is that what you want to do, God? Do you want to just crush me again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Did you not put me and form me together? Did it, were you not the one that, that for, you know, formed me, Lord? Did you not clothe my skin with flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews and have granted me life and favor? And, you, and your care has preserved my spirit. Verse 12, you gave me life. You showed me unfailing love. You preserved me by your care. And these things you have hidden in your heart, your real motive, God, has been all along to allow this to take place. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me. And will you not acquit me of my iniquity? Look, he's asking God to acquit him. I love that, that Jesus, that's what he's done. He's acquitted us. He's declared us innocent. He's all, Lord, why is it that you not declare me innocent? I'm in shame and misery. If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I cannot lift my head. No matter what, Lord, I feel powerless. I'm full of disgrace. Look at my misery, verse 15. My head is exalted. If my head is exalted, you haunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. If I'm prideful, you'll come and you'll humble me, Lord. Verse 16. Verse 17. You renew your wickedness against me and increase your indignation toward me. And changes and war are ever with me. There's no matter what, I feel the pressure that is against me. Here, verse 18. Why was I born? Listen to this. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I perish and no eye have seen me. I wish I would have never been born. I would have been though as I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. From the womb to the tomb. And none of my days are my days not few. Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I'll not return. Lord, just give me some grace before I die. And I go to the grave, to a place that will never return, and to a land of darkness in the shadow of death. A land of darkness, of dark as darkness itself, a shadow of death, without any order where the light is like darkness. Look what he's saying here. He's hopeless completely, and now his... his third friend Zophar is going to come with now an accusation against him now and he's very brash he doesn't have a right view of God he, he really doesn't understand uh, truth and, and really he's angry now at Job you see how, how sometimes we come up to people and we're angry in their moment of pain you, you cannot be angry at someone in their moment of pain because the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness. The, the, the wrath of man, I'm sorry, doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Here, here comes this friend, third friend, the third friend. He comes in chapter 11. He comes with anger. And look what he says in verse 11 here as we just read through chapter 11 so that we understand. And Zophar the Naphtali answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? Should a man here full of talk be vindicated? Should I not answer you now from everything that you're just saying and babbling now, Job? Should your empty talk make me hold their peace? Should not everything, you think that I'm just going to stay quiet while you ramble? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? You think you're going to be innocent just because of everything you're saying? For you have said my doctrine is pure, that I'm going to clean in your eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. You say that you are pure and innocent, but I wish that God would just come and say something. 
That he would show you the secrets of wisdom, that they would double your prudence and know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. He said, you know, God has given you even less than what you deserve. You deserve worse, Job. I mean, you want a friend like that? <laughs> you're going through suffering, and he comes and he tells you, you know what? God should be giving you much worse than what you're, what you're going through. That's exactly what he's saying. He's giving you less than what you deserve. Can you search out the deep things of God? Now, this is a very important verse, verse 7. Because Zophar didn't know the deep things of God. He didn't know the compassion of God. He didn't know the love of God. You want to know the deepest things of God lie in the love of God. The deep things of God. Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? He's saying they are higher than the heavens. What should you do? Deeper than the grave? How can you know? They measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sun. Now he's talking about how strong and powerful and almighty God is. How, how, how now deep and high and wide. But does not the Bible tell us also the love of God is also deep and high and wide as well? You see how he's missing this? We can never afford to miss the love of God in moments of trial. Never can we afford to miss the love of God in a time of trial. Now in verse 9, the measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful man, he sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it for an empty-headed man will be wise? And a wild donkey's colt, uh, donkey's colt is born to a man. Do you think ever that God will allow you and you think that an empty-headed man will ever be pronounced with wisdom? Verse 11 and 12, he's saying, the empty-headed man will not be wise. From verse 13 and 20 on the rest of the chapter, he's telling them to repent before God. And he's giving them now, look at how he, how he takes truth out of context. We have to be careful we never do this because he, what he's saying is right. However, he's saying it in the wrong situation. It doesn't apply to Job. See, when God gives you now a heart to comfort someone, make sure that it applies to their situation because this doesn't apply. <laughs> if you would prepare your heart and search out your hands toward him, if iniquity in your hand and you would put it far and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you can lift up your face without spot, yet so you can be steadfast and not fear. If you would just repent, then you would be able to lift your head boldly and not be ashamed. Because you would forget your misery and remember it as it waters and have passed away, it would be behind you and your life would be brighter than the noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would uh, now dig around you and you would take your rest in safety. Yet you would also lie down, and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. But those that are wicked, actually, their, their eyes are going to fail. They're going to have no escape. And they shall not escape. Their hope now is the loss of life. Their only hope of those that are wicked is death. So just repent, and God's going to restore you. He's going to give you hope. Now, all of these things are true. God does restore those who repent. However, is that what Job needed? Was it to repent? No. What he needed was to endure. What he needed was to endure. He didn't need to repent. He needed to endure. And, and it's important here because he missed now, he missed the compassion of God. You're going through a storm, don't miss the compassion of God. He missed so far here. 
he misappropriated the truth about what was taking place. And in, verse, in chapter 12, what happens here in chapter 12 is that now Job pleads on the power of God. And he, he doesn't stop trusting God. Have you ever been through moments in your life where you feel like it's an, a, a spiritual roller coaster? You're trusting God and then you're not trusting God and you're freaking out and then you're not trusting God. Well, now Job, in chapter 12, he answered chapter 12 to chapter 14. We're not going to go through all those chapters right now. But in chapter 12, you know what he does? He starts to call on the hand of God. And I want to encourage you to call on the hand of God tonight. Because it's the hand of God that will sustain you. Remember that, please. It's the hand of God that will protect you. It's the hand of God that will uphold you. It was a, it's the hand of God that will go before you. The hand of God. And that's what he's talking about. The power of God. The power of God. And he's going to talk about this in the entire chapter. The power of God and what the hand of God does. He's going to say this. Let's go to verse 9 of chapter 12 so that you see what he says who among, Job 12, verse 9, who among all these does not know? As he answers, that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is life of every living thing and breath of all mankind. What does he do? He's trusting in the hand of God still. He's trusting in the hand of God. I'm going to give you three final verses before we end today about the hand of God. Because it's in the hand of God that we ought to be trusting today through trials. There are things in our lives that we don't understand, but we know one thing. The hand of God is for the people of God, those that are submitted to God. And no time is ever wasted in the hand of God. Number one, because of the hand of God, I know, write this down, because of the hand I go, I know that nothing is too hard for Him. Because of the hand of God, I know one thing. Nothing is too hard for him. How do I know that? I'm not just saying that. It's biblical. Because of the hand of God, I know that nothing is too hard for him. Write this down. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth the great power and, and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Look at that promise. In your moment of trial, because of the hand of God, I know that nothing is too hard for him. Why? That's so comforting. Number two, because of the hand of God, I know he will uphold me. The hand of God will uphold me. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. The hand of God upholds me. Not only the hand of God teaches me that nothing is too hard for him. His hand upholds me. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Don't you love the hand of God that, that takes care of now, ever, that does the heavens and the earth and with great power, nothing's hard for Him? If he, if he created the heavens and the earth with His hands, then nothing's too hard for Him. But also His righteous right hand upholds me. Number three, because of the hand of God, I know that He is powerful. Number three, I know that He is powerful. In Joshua chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, when they were crossing the Jordan, 
You know what Joshua did? He made them put 12 stones of memorial so that they would tell their children that the hand of God had split the Jordan River for them. Joshua 4, verse 23 and 24 says this, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over as the Lord did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. And here's the punchline in verse 24. That all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that is mighty here, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What do I know because of the hand of God in my moment of trial, just like Job, the hand of God has done this? That nothing is too hard for Him. That He will uphold me in my moment of trial. And num number three, that He is powerful. That He, nothing is too hard for Him. He will uphold me. And He is powerful. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your hand. The hand of God. We thank You, Lord, that in moments of adversity, we can, Lord, trust You. And know that there is no wasted time in the hands of God. We thank You, Lord, that through Job, You're teaching us what Your hand does in our lives, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that not only would You give us a fireproof faith, but also eyes that see, Lord. Eyes that see with faith, Lord. That our vision, Lord, would not grow small in the moment of trial, God. But Lord, that we will be able to see that your hand is in control. That you are powerful, God. That you are, Lord, above all, God. That we have a mediator, Lord. That we are acquitted, Lord. Declared not guilty. And that you are above all, God. We thank you, Lord. Because Job tells his friends and he reminds himself, they are not in control. He is not in control. God is in control. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you and to rely on your hands and not on our hands. In Jesus' name. And together we said...